heads for my peoples in a promised land that never planned to free designed to keep curled in the fetal feeble stay strong brother we need you we need you this one here is for my peoples in a promised land that never planned to free designed to keep curled in the fetal feeble stay strong sister we need you Powerful Impact, where we interview people who made a powerful impact on the culture, music, and the community at large. I'm SP, and I'm here with Nev, and we have a special guest, Ayana Ali. Um, it's, it's wonderful that you're here because I think that um, we don't talk about mental health enough you know, especially in our community. So I am so grateful that you came today and um, I can't wait to get into the topics. Um, Thank you, I'm glad to be here. So I'm just going to start off with uh, where are you from originally? And um, how does that affect um, your work? Uh, so I'm originally from Brooklyn. Um, I still live in Brooklyn. <laughs> I've basically lived in Brooklyn my whole life, except for a few short periods of time um, where I lived elsewhere. But, um, you know, Brooklyn is in my veins. I love I love this, um, this borough. I love the people of Brooklyn. And I think the way that it shows up in my work is that, you know, obviously I'm educated. Obviously, you know, I've gone to school and I can speak the King's English, but you know, I can also, um, I speak like a Brooklynite. Obviously, I have an accent. Um, I didn't realize I had an accent until I was about 20 years old. And I went to stay in Rhode Island. I was uh, lived in Rhode Island for a summer. And everybody was like, oh, you have an accent. And I was like, no, I don't. What are you talking about? Um, <laughs> so um, I'm just real. Um, you know, it, I, I, you know, I just, I use a lot of Brooklynese and um you know, I think I bring a realness to my work that people can appreciate. I think especially people who are originally from New York, but definitely people who are from Brooklyn. So, so um, how did you decide to get into the field of mental health and, um, and you know, eventually become a therapist in the private sector? So um, my story, I mean, maybe, I, I don't know if it's, if it's unlike many other people's story. So, I um, have a sister. She's two years younger than me. And, um, you know, it was the two of us and our parents. And um, when we were, I think I was about 18 and my sister was about 16, um, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and it was something that kind of really, um, like, shook our family. You know, fortunately, she's still here. She's, um, she's a 25 or 26-year survivor. But at the time that she was going through her treatment, um, our family was kind of like in a tailspin because, you know, as as most families are, the mom is the center and holds everybody together. And um, you know, our mom was sick. So um, we had decided as a family that we wanted to go and we wanted to talk to a therapist. And um, so we went as a family to see a woman who um, was is. And LCSW, she's a black woman. She's very successful. She 
practices in Brooklyn, worked a lot with, um, you know, Black families. And she, you know, worked with us around our fears and our doubts and, you know, kind of all the emotions that we were going through and knowing that um, our mom was sick. Um, and it was very helpful for us to kind of just come together and be able to, in a safe space, say that, you know, we were scared, we were worried, all of those things. Um, and that's, that's those couple of sessions that we went to with her were very, um, not only healing for me, but they were very um, impactful for me because here I was, you know, in a mental health setting across from a woman who looked like me and a woman mm -hmm. who kind of, you know, um, my family is mainly from the South. She's from the South. So not only, you know, was she a black woman, she was a woman who was familiar with a lot of like our cultural norms and um, family values and stuff like that. And so that was so powerful for me, you know, because I think what we had seen on what we, we were used to seeing on TV were, you know, these images, these very like, you know, austere and kind of like clinic, uh, like sterile kind of like um, depictions of what it's like to be in therapy. And here this woman was warm and, you know, and it didn't feel um, weird or odd. It didn't feel like she was judging us. And it felt like she really could understand what we were going through. So for me, um, it was a good experience, but it also was an inspiring one because I was like, hey, I like what this lady is doing. Um, and, um, you know, it got me interested in mental health. And mm -hmm. then I went to college and I got a degree in psychology. Um, I, I found that I only really liked the social aspects of psychology. I didn't like the science part of it, cognition, perception, any of that. So I didn't know if I would be a good candidate to get a, P, you know, to pursue a PhD. And um, someone told me about social work and that there was something called clinical social work where you could learn to be a therapist, but you were also um, looking at the person in the environment and seeing how kind of the larger environment impacts people's individual um, lives and, and outcomes. And then also um, worked especially with people in marginalized communities or people who tend to, you know, get the short end of the stick. So it kind of appealed mm -hmm. to everything. And then I remembered that the therapist that we had seen was the a licensed clinical social worker. And I was like, oh, that's what she is. You know, that's what she was. Um, so that's why I decided to pursue social work as opposed to psychology or anything else. And, um, you know, I think all those years back when I had had that positive experience, it kind of put a seed in my head and then kind of my educational um, endeavors and also my personal interests in like the Black community and working with mm -hmm. marginalized they kind of all came together in social work. And so that's how I got into this field. That's pretty dope. Um, that's kind of my path into uh, being a psych nurse was uh, I worked hospice for so many years and mm -hmm. to see the trauma that happens with children that um, had losses, I say, well, let me you know, divert myself into another direction. So I know how it is when you have um, something that hits you and you're like, yeah, I can, I, I made a change at 40. So what are some of your specialties in the pop and the population that you work with? So I'm a black woman, obviously mm -hmm. I love, with black women i love working with women who are you know similar to me um but within that 
I mean, and obviously I work with everybody, but you know, my my heart and soul really um, is in working, you know, specifically with Black women, and uh, I work a lot with people who suffer from anxiety and depression, which is unfortunately very common um, in in the in the Black community, and unfortunately, it's very common for women to deal with anxiety and depression, um, whether it's related to family or career. Um, and I think that the way that Black women experience anxiety and depression sometimes looks different. So that's the population that um, I really, you know, focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, some of my work is around how to manage anxiety and depression, least specifically how it shows up for us. Um, another of my kind of areas of interest is around racial trauma. So um, I have run in the past, like, um, racial trauma support groups um, mm-hmm. for um, and for um, people of color. And um, we talk a lot about kind of work situations, what it's like to be a person of color in a corporate environment, or, you know, not even necessarily in a corporate environment, sometimes in the education system or, you know, any mm-hmm. anywhere. But what's it like as a, as a Black person to be in an environment where um, you are um, not the majority and you do have to deal with overt sometimes and sometimes subtle racism and how that affects self-esteem and how that affects how we view ourselves and, you know, how comfortable we are in those spaces, how it affects our ability to feel successful. Um, So I do a lot of that kind of work. And then um, something else that I do um, that I'm really like growing this niche is working with women who suffer from infertility and pregnancy loss. Um, that is um, part of my own personal journey. And I found that when I was going through those things, um, you know, I had doctor to talk to or a surgeon to talk to. Um, mm-hmm. but nobody really was checking up on me in terms of my mental health after every time I had a loss or when I was struggling, you know, to, to grow my family. So um, mm-hmm. I've been doing support groups for women who suffer from pregnancy loss and infertility. And um, I'm actually in in January going to be seeing a new support group for couples who are dealing with infertility and pregnancy loss. So those are really my areas of interest. And that's usually where my work centers on. Oh, okay. So what is some advice or I hate to say a blueprint, but more like um, <laughs> um, um, more like a process. A break a process. Yeah, <laughs> you uh, you would give or leave behind for someone who's interested in getting into the field of mental health. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I would tell people is that, you know, there are many ways to to work in mental health, right? Not everybody has to be a therapist. Um, you know, you can be a, a nurse. <laughs> um, you know, you can be a case manager. And I think that sometimes that's something that is not necessarily expressed to people. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're the the field of mental health is large. So I would say to people, you know, if you're interested in mental health, 
and you think, you know, you view yourself in the mental health field, what do you view yourself doing? How do you view yourself participating in that field? And then, you know, can you match that up with a specific discipline or can you match that up with a specific, you know, a career trajectory? And 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 then can you put yourself on that path by either studying um, in that discipline or applying for a job in that realm and then, you know, giving it a chance and seeing if you really like it? Um, Oftentimes, some people want to go to school for, you know, to be in mental health. I, um, you know, they don't know what to do. They're like, should I get a psychology degree? You know, and I would recommend that people really look at the different um, sets of programs and kind of what the focuses are or, um, you know, what what the groups, you know, you can do individuals and families, you can do um, with social work, at least, you, you know, sometimes you can do individual and families, you can do policy, you can do administration, you know, what's the area that you really see yourself working in or that you're really interested in? And then look at the, um, you know, the curriculums and, and see if you can find one that aligns itself a little you know, more closely to what you want to do. Um, it used to be that social workers were kind of on the low end, <laughs> with like the bottom of the t totem pole in the field of mental health. That's not really the case anymore. Um, and so, you know, I always make a plug for social work because social work is a really versatile degree. You can do a lot of things with a social work degree. You can work in a lot of settings. Um, but I think, you know, talking to people, asking people kind of what do you do if you know that somebody works in mental health and then you know seeing how closely what they're describing that they do or what their interests are aligned with yours is is one you know good way to kind of um get your your feet wet um what else um yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I want to stress to people is that you don't have to get a PhD to be a mental health, you know, worker. Mm -hmm. Some people are really, um, you know, they're afraid because they don't want to get a PhD. I didn't want to get a PhD. And at the time when I was in graduate school, um, a PsyD was something that was kind of new and I didn't know that much about it. So I was kind of like, what am I going to do? You know, and then I realized, oh, I can, you know, get a master's degree in social work. Um, so you don't have to spend six to eight years in graduate school to work in the field of mental health to be you know, efficient and to be pro a proficient mental health worker. So that's also another bit of advice I would give people. Um, so no, do you have to go half a million dollars in debt? Either? Right. Yes. Right. Spend a decade and it will be called a doctor. That's right. There are a lot of like, you know, good community colleges and, and universities where you don't have to pay an arm and a leg to get your degree and you will be just as qualified as anybody else and you mm -hmm. can pass licensing exam, just like, you know, someone who went to an Ivy League school, um, you know, I, I went to a very pricey school and I'm still paying <laughs> my loans today. I don't regret it, but, you know, sometimes when I look back on it, I'm like, hmm, maybe I could have just gone to, um, I got into Hunter College. I didn't go there. It was much cheaper than the university that I went to. And sometimes I wonder what my life would be like if I had made a different choice, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of finances. So, so do you feel like um, you chose your career or do you feel like your career chose you? Um, I feel like a little bit of both. You know, I, th I think that I, you know, people who know me know that I'm like, you know, I was raised in a very power to the people kind of household. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
and I, by my dad. Um, and I have a lot of that, that's an aspect of my personality. So I feel like, you know, even if I hadn't gone into mental health, I probably would have been doing something that I feel like serves the community directly and, you know, in a, in a more direct way. Um, I definitely think that experience that I, you know, described to you at the beginning um, was was life changing for me. So I think, in some senses, like that experience was mental health's way of cho- of choosing me because it it showed me like what I could do for other people and or who I could be for other people. And so mm-hmm. um, that was an inspiration. Um, and I also think that I. Um, you know, I had these dreams of kind of maybe being a psychologist and being doctor. My, my maiden name is Johnson, Dr. Johnson. And then I realized, oh, there's this thing called social work, which, you know, and I, and this is not in any way putting down psychologists or psychiatrists, but I was like, there's this thing called social work, which really captures like the heart of what I want to do. So mm-hmm. I feel like I had a very good friend who was going to social work school and she started telling me about it. So in that way, I feel like, you know, the, 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 the discipline kind of chose me too because I got all of these messages about like this is where you should be and you can do this. So oh cool. Yeah. Um what is some of the some advice you'd give to someone thinking that they should go to therapy? Um and they're kind of on the fence about therapy. Yeah. Um what kind of steps do you think one would go about setting up the appointment with the therapist? or for an initial consultation? Um, so the first bit of advice that I would say is like, if you're thinking about going to therapy, go. <laughs> um, <laughs> you really don't have much to lose by going. Uh, you have a lot to possibly gain. Um, I would also tell people that, you know, I think people have this idea that, you know, I'll get into therapy and I'll be working with somebody forever and ever. And if it's a disaster, like I have no way to get out of it. Um, and that's not the case. It's the same thing as if you, know, you choose a new primary care physician and, you know, for whatever reason you don't, you know, jive with that person, you can always make another choice. So if you're thinking about going to therapy and you, you know, sorry, I have a dog. <laughs> And you try to, you know, enroll in it and then it doesn't work for you. You can always change for, you know, to someone else or explore other options. Um, And so, you know, one of the things I think that we don't spend enough time explaining to people is how to get into therapy in the first place. Sometimes people are like, I need to talk to somebody or, you know, I need help. Or a friend may say to them, girl, you, you know, you need to go to therapy. You need to work your issues out. But nobody ever says how to do that. Um, So one of the, you know, the easiest ways to get enrolled in therapy is if you have health insurance, you know, you can usually look on the back of your health insurance card and there's a number, a customer service number that you can call and you can just let them know that you want to be transferred to the behavioral health department or the mental health department. And they will transfer you to the department whose job it is to explain your benefits to you, help you find a provider. Um, let you know if you have a copay or not, let you know if there are certain limitations on the number of sessions or the type of clinician you can see. Um, You know, that mental health arm of your health insurance is really kind of, you know, a a huge resource for you, which you should access because you're paying a premium for that insurance 
and you know you 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 need to be able to get the information for people who are not insured because we know that you know insurance can be expensive and for some people they don't have it um you can reach out to like your local community center you can reach out to your local hospital you can sometimes reach out to your um religious organization, a church, a synagogue, a masjid, you know, a temple, very often they have mental health resources that they can put you in contact with. So, you know, um, there's all kinds of ways of getting hooked up with people, whether you have insurance or not. There are often many um, free or low cost therapies that can be offered at in um, community service centers or at hospitals. So, you know, people shouldn't let the lack of insurance be a deterrent either for whether or not they will engage in treatment. Mm-hmm. So, so um, I think it, uh, we have a big problem in our community about understanding that in any kind of health care, you are the consumer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I hear people saying, I hate my doctor or, <laughs> you know, Right. They they never seem to be interested in what I'm doing. Right. Um, how important is it that you find a fit with the therapist that you're going to engage with? It's it's really important. Um, you know, I mean, your therapist is part of your medical team or your wellness team, right? So, just like you said, people will sometimes say, "Oh, I don't like my my doctor." Um, you know, and some people choose to say, or some people will choose to look for someone else. You should feel as entitled to look for a therapist that you feel would be a better fit for you, just as entitled as you, you know, feel to look for a different doctor or a different dentist or anything like that. Um, because the ease and the comfort that you feel when you're with that person is going to influence whether or not you're really going to be honest with them, whether you're going to be forthcoming, you know, whether you um, are feeling that you can say something that um, about which you may have some shame or some guilt, you know, if you're mm-hmm. not you're not going to be the real authentic you. So, you know, if you find yourself in a situation where you feel like this is just not working for me for whatever reason, you know, know that you do have the right to explore and look elsewhere. Um, There are lots of websites that are devoted to finding clinicians, you know, whether you're looking for a clinician of color, whether you're looking for a clinician of a specific religious, you know, um, kind of background, or whether you're Mm -hmm. looking for who identifies as part of the LGBTQIA community. I mean, any if whatever you're looking for, there's a way for you to find that person <laughs> online. Yeah. Um, also, you can ask your friends. Many, you know, you may have friends that are in therapy and they may be able to say, oh, I, I know of this therapist who's really good or I know of this therapist who works on this specific area of interest. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, 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 keep seeking until you find what you like. And mm-hmm. if you don't like a particular therapist, you know, you don't feel comfortable. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It also doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the therapist. It just may mean it's not a good fit, you know? And so just move on. And you have the right to move on. It's so, it's so often that people, well, they're the doctor or, you right. know, and then they, but I always tell people it's very important that you advocate for yourself because um, especially being a person of color and being a woman, you know, nobody's going to advocate for you. 
sometimes right. you have to have that friend come in with you so they mm -hmm. can hear exactly what you're hearing and give yeah. you feedback. So um, I think people have a, 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 a kind, of, kind of standoffish when it comes to mental health because they don't really understand that just because someone sent you to this particular person doesn't mean you have to stay. You have to stay. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, is like, you know, therapy is a relationship, right? You know, so mm -hmm. I care about my clients and they care about me and, you know, we work together. But, you know, when it all, all boils down to it, I work for my clients, right? So mm -hmm. I'm performing a job for them and I'm supposed to be helping them, um, you know, achieve some type of result. Um, you know, if that's not the case, if, it, you know, if one of my clients feels like, you know, she's not as helpful as I want her to be, or I really want somebody who, you know, practices this specific brand of therapy, they have a right to say that to me and ask me, you know, what my thoughts are about it or ask me if, you know, we can introduce something else into the treatment plan. And if I can't do it or if I'm not comfortable with it or, you know, we try and it doesn't work out, they have a right to move on because nobody has time to waste. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. of anything, you know, with COVID and with, you know, all that's been going on in the last couple of years, we realize that life is short. You know, mm -hmm. you don't say something that doesn't feel good for you whatever it is. Yeah. So there's a, all of these new things that are popping up. And, you know, I, I think for a lot of people in our community, mental health is something that you kind of put to the side. And so all these new phrases and words and all of this stuff is coming up. So can you explain to the audience the difference between a life coach, a therapist, a social worker, a counselor, <laughs> so they kind of know exactly where where they should go. Yeah. So um, a therapist, you know, is a person who works with people um, around a specific diagnosis or a specific mm -hmm. set of problems. Um, through talk therapy, typically, sometimes through, you know, another type of therapy, but their goal is to help address, um, you know, a, a, a mental health diagnosis. Now, a therapist can be a social worker, they can be a psychologist, they can be a rehabilitation counselor, they can be a CASAC, you know, they can have a particular discipline or a particular area of study um, you know, that they've mastered. Um, but all of those you know, they can be a, a nurse practitioner, um, mm -hmm. anybody who is helping you um, by making a diagnosis, doing an intake, making a diagnosis, and then is trying to help you navigate life in light of the diagnosis that you've been assigned through meeting with you on a regular basis and creating a treatment plan is a therapist. Now, each of the disciplines that I've mentioned to you has a particular um, kind of slant or or lens through which they they approach their work. So I'm a social worker and social workers, you know, are our, our real area of focus is the person in the environment. So I'm mm -hmm. going to give a diagnosis. Um, I'm going to talk to you and try to help you come up with a plan with how you can, you know, learn to function at your best in light of that diagnosis um, or, or, you know, working with that diagnosis. But in addition to that, I'm looking at your overall environment and I'm wondering how the outside environment 
um, or the inside environment, like your family system or, you know, your work system, how those things are impacting how you show up in life and how you navigate that particular diagnosis or that particular set of problems <clears throat> that you came to me for. You know, a psychologist might be doing something different. They might be looking at, you know, your personal psychology or what your personal kind of a- approach to life is and how you apply that to the outside world. So it's a different focus, you know, but we're all but we're we all are capable of doing therapy. When you ask about like counseling, um, typically counseling is a little bit different and that it's not necessarily psychotherapy. Um, the idea of psychotherapy is that I'm working with you to help you come up with the answers, um, you know, that will help you improve your life and better your functioning. Counselors in the true sense of the meaning tend to give more advice and tend to give more direction, let's say, than a psychotherapist would because they have a specific area of expertise and their job is to educate you about that and provide you with a little bit more direct guidance. So, you know, it really depends on what you're looking for. Sometimes, um, you know, we, as, as, as a social worker, a licensed clinical social worker, there are times when I might be giving counseling to a client of mine because I might think in this particular area they really need it. So it's also sometimes like we wear different hats, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you, you know, think that you need a particular um, type of clinician with a particular type of training, you know, I would encourage you to seek that person out and find out if that's the case, you know. Um, but there's a wide variety of of, of professionals within the mental health community, and they all do something slightly different. I don't think anyone is better than the other, though. I think you can be helped by any of those professionals with any of those disciplines. So what about affordability? Um, How can potential clients find therapy that's affordable and doable for their pockets and budget and lifestyle? You know, specialists can be really costly. So um, how do you find um, the clinician that's going to um, be affordable or um, comfortable for your budget. So this is when I would say that these like search engines that I referred to a little bit earlier are really your friend, you know, because, uh-huh. um, you know, some of these websites you can go and you can add filters. And so you can say like, I'm looking for a therapist in Brooklyn who's a black woman who charges between, you know, 50 and $75 per session or less than that, or, you know, who mm-hmm. speaks a specific language. Um, so, you know, if finances finance is a concern, you can kind of put the range. Or if you have a certain type of insurance and you only want to use your insurance as opposed to, let's say, paying out of pocket, then you can put, you know, I have HIP or I have GHI. And and then you can click that insurance. and, And the list is only going to give you people who accept that particular insurance. So then you know that if you're seeing that, you know, any of those clinicians that came up on that list, that all your them, let's say, is a co-payment as opposed to paying the whole entire cost of the session. Um, many clinicians also um, view taking insurance as a means to um, providing access for clients. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm in I'm in New York City, you know, on Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue, there are lots of therapists who maybe charge $350 per session. 
I mean, that's great, but that's not the population that I'm targeting, right? So um, there was a time when I didn't take insurance at all. And I, and I think that that affected the number of people who were coming to me. I wasn't charging what I think to, what I consider to be a huge amount of money. I was charging like $100 per session, but for some people that's just too much, right? So then when I decided mm -hmm. to have insurance panels, you know, um, it was a win-win because there were more people who could come to me using their insurance and there were more clients that I could work with, right? Um, there are also some clinicians who, whether they're charging like $350 a session or whether or not they're on insurance panels, they also set aside a certain number of slots for clients where they will maybe charge a nominal fee or where they will sometimes give like a pro bono service where they won't charge at all. So, um, you know, there are people out there who are committed to doing the work for people who, you know, maybe don't have insurance or maybe can't afford it. There are also many organizations where they are applying for and being given grants and they may actually pay for the services, um, you know, for people to get, get uh, therapy for free. So in the past, I've worked with organizations where they ap applied for grants, they were given money and that money was utilized to pay the clinician who then gives the therapy and all the clients who come to the therapy don't pay. So there's, oh, you know, cool. the way to do it. Yeah. So what are some of the pros and cons of being an African-American and female therapist in the field of <laughs> mental health? Um, I don't think there are any cons, you know, I'm a black woman, so I'm not going to say like, you know, <laughs> It's not a con. It's who I am, you know. Um, you know, I think, you know, but if we want to be like real, you know, depending on the setting and what you're trying to seek employment, um, you know, you may encounter people who think, uh, you know, you're not as qualified or, you know, you're not as well trained. Um, you know, I found that that's less of an issue these days than it was maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I was getting my degree because there are people who are specifically looking for black women or black male clinicians who, you know, work in this area or work on this issue um, because of who they are and mm -hmm. because level of not only clinical acumen, but also real life experience that they can bring to the setting. So, I mean, I think it's a great time to be a Black clinician. I think it's a great time to be a Black person. <laughs> um, I think it's a great time to be a Black clinician because more and more people saying like, I want to work with somebody who looks like me, or I want somebody who a background that's similar to mine. So, you know, we're in demand um, much more than we ever were. But I think, you know, whether you're a therapist or whether you're a doctor, whether you're a teacher, regardless of what you, what, you know, what your field is, there always mm -hmm. will be, um, you know, racism that you will encounter wherever you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, I'm not going to say there's anything bad about being a black woman therapist because there's not. <laughs> so what are some of the pros and cons of um being an entrepreneur owning your own owning your own practice okay well there's definitely some pros and cons to that <laughs> um i mean i Speak think the the pros are you know you you're working for yourself right you can decide um which cases you take on um you know when you're starting out in mental health most people work in like a clinic setting 
um, or most people who want to do psychotherapy, you know, um, wind up working in like a mental health setting, a, a clinic setting or like a hospital clinic setting. I mean, in those instances, typically you don't have much of a say of which clients in which cases you're going to take on, right? When you work for yourself, you can be like, oh, this population I'm good with, this population I'm not as strong with, I'm not going to work with this population at all. Or, you know, I really enjoy this work, so this is what I'm going to focus on. You don't always do have that have that ability when you're working for other people. Um, so you have the ability to really, like, create a niche for yourself and create an area of expertise. And then after you've been doing this work for a while, you can be like, I'm an expert. Cause you know what? I am, <laughs> you know, I mean, I have, I got my degree 21 years ago and, you know, probably like it took me till like two years ago to really own the idea of like, I'm an expert, you know, I, I'm an expert in what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I think some of the cons can be that, you know, depending on, um, how much you charge or depending on the, you know, the number of people who are seeking you out for services, mm-hmm. you may or may not be making the amount of money that you want. Um, you know, obviously for people who did not believe in virtual therapy, when the pandemic hit, it was, it was, it was bad, you know, mm-hmm. um, people, some people were very anti the idea of virtual therapy. Um, and so, if you weren't willing to do that, how were you going to work with your clients? You couldn't, um, you know, so, you know, there are always things that you kind of have to like work out when you're working on your own health insurance, pension, you know, like dental benefits, like those kind of things can be um, a real barrier to self-employment for people. And, you know, um, there are ways to go about it, but it can be tricky. Um, it's also information that you usually have to pay money to get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to learn. So, you know, depending on your financial situation, if you're not making a lot of money in your practice, and let's say you want business coaching or you want an accountant to come in and, you know, help you do your books, you know, it may be difficult. Um, another thing that can be difficult about being self employed is that, you know, when you work for somebody, you get a certain amount of sick time and vacation time and all of that, right? So, you mm-hmm. know, as long as you go over the limit, if you're if you don't go into work for a day, you're still going to get paid. Or if you decide, like, I want to go to Mexico for a week, you're going to get paid. When you work for yourself, you don't get paid if you don't do a session unless you have passive income. You know, you have other means of making passive income. And that's something that, you know, mental health workers don't usually get taught. We get taught the clinical pieces and how to do diagnosis and how to do engagement. We're not taught how to, like, run a business or, Mm -hmm. you know, or the ways that you can make multiple streams of income. Nobody teaches us that. You know, we usually have to seek that information out on our own. I mean, so, you know, that can be difficult. Um, But like, I have a five-year-old daughter. You know, I tend to work between certain hours and then I stop working and I go and I pick her up from school. There are two days where I have somebody come by and stay with her. My mom and my dad live really close. They stay with her and help her with her homework so I can see some more clients the rest of the afternoon. And then there are other days when I just work up until two o'clock and then I'm done for the day. That's one of the great things about being self-employed, you know, is that you set your schedule. Um, So, you know, it's really about like how you see yourself working and how you can make the money that you need to make so that you can live the way you want to live. 
So before you before you went into your um own practice, mm-hmm. what, what were some of the populations that you worked with? Um, so I've worked in a lot of settings, but um, I've worked a lot in homeless services. Mm-hmm. Um, my first jobs, I worked in a city-sponsored um, women's shelter, and it mm-hmm. was a program within a city-run um, shelter for women who were chemically addicted and mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Um, then I've, wa- I've worked in preventive care. I worked um, in a program that was um, trying to prevent um, families from being separated and children being placed into foster care, and then was also working with parents and children when um, children were returned, trying to help them, you know, children remain in the home. Um, I've worked in a lot of different mental health clinics <laughs> um, <laughs> when I was trying to get my license. Um, I've also, for many years, worked at a labor union. So oh. um, I was actually providing social services with within you know, under the umbrella of a union. Um, I was working with retirees. So I did like um, geriatric um, social services at the union. So I worked Uh with people who were transitioning into retirement. I helped them um, transition from work life into retirement. I also had a specialty that I had kind of developed where if there were people who were going to be filing for disability retirement because of the onset or the worsening of a mental illness, I would work with those people. So I would not only help them fill out the applications, but I would co- coordinate like the mental um, health evaluations and um, you know psychiatric evaluations that they needed so that they could qualify for a pension. And um, I did a lot around like Medicare and Social Security and stuff like that with that population mm-hmm. also. And then I started working with the active members of that union and doing things like mental health referrals, um, crisis intervention. So the union um, represents city employees. And so sometimes things would happen at the work site, like there might be violence in the work um, space. I would go and do intervention and debriefing. If uh, if someone passed away, either at the job or, you know, at their home, but the, the colleagues were... Um, affected by that death, I would go in and do bereavement sessions and things like that. So I've done a lot of of that kind of work. Um, I also worked for nine years for a large social service organization where I did a lot of things, different jobs there. Um, Mm -hmm. I led an in-house mental health consulting team. So they had like residential programs and clinics and ACT teams and all kinds of programs. And I would I led the team that would come in and do some like consulting for the case managers who ran those programs. And then sometimes we would be like doing evaluations for people determining if they needed to be hospitalized. So um, unfortunately, sometimes I would have to have people hospitalized, but the people who were working with them were not clinicians and maybe weren't sure. Um, I did a lot of like professional development education also at that at that organization. So I did something called um, understanding mental illness, where mm-hmm. I, I wrote a curriculum about some of the um, the mental illnesses that you see most often in 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 our populations, and explaining it to them, um, explaining to the workers who didn't have clinical degrees, you know, how to recognize signs and symptoms, how mm-hmm. to communicate with people therapeutically, you mm-hmm. know. 
some of the things like if someone's delusional, you know, don't dispute the delusion because it's something that can automatically, you know, put distance between you and the client. Um, I also worked for home care agencies where Mm -hmm. I would into um, the home and I would do evaluations about, um, you know, if if a home um, health aid was needed and if so, how many hours. And I also did in-home evaluation, mental health evaluations for children. So I've I've done a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what exactly is mental health uh, or, or mental health disorder? Um, well, uh, mental, mental illness in general. So mental illness is when there is a specific set of symptoms or, um, experiences that someone, um, you know, um, someone experiences that's usually partially biologically based. So sometimes Mm -hmm. there's of a certain chemical in in the brain or not enough of a certain chemical in the brain. Um, But it's usually biologically based. And then it also has a um, environmental or psychological um, component as well. And it's a constellation of symptoms or experiences that interfere with daily functioning. So, you know, for example, people lots of people are like, oh, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. Yeah. There's a difference though, between being anxious because you have an exam coming up next week and you have uh-huh. to study really hard for it. And then having anxiety to the point where it's very hard to concentrate on a task or it's hard to sleep at night because, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and think about all the things that could possibly go wrong. Um, uh-huh. or, um, you are so afraid of encountering something specific um, that you you actually develop an aversion to it. Like you're so mm-hmm. afraid of encountering germs that you don't want to touch doorknobs or you don't want to touch, you know, um, you don't want to shake hands with people. And because of that reason, you stay away from people or you stay in the house. That's anxiety to the point that it's interfering with, you know, your daily functioning, you're making friends or going out to work. Um, and so when it interferes with with functioning and with mm-hmm. the living life the way that they want to, and it's something that um, you know is based in biology and psychology, that's what we would call a mental illness. So depression, for example, is different than being sad. You know, we all have things mm-hmm. that we feel sad. You know, maybe we might even cry about them. Maybe when they come up for us, we feel emotional, um, but we're able to kind of carry mm-hmm. on. With our yeah. with our daily lives, depression, however, is when there's sadness and there's lack of motivation, and there's kind of an actual like slowing down or what we call yeah. psych- psychomotor retardation, where you're so heavy and you're so weighed down by the things that are bothering you that it's hard to get out of bed, or mm-hmm. um, maybe you sleep all the time, maybe you can't sleep, maybe you e- you're eating all the time, or maybe you don't have an appetite at all. Um, mm-hmm. It's thinking things like, oh, I didn't do a good job on that presentation. It's, you know, I'm worthless. I shouldn't be here. Um, You know, I I don't contribute anything to the world. Those kind of um, thoughts and that kind of dysfunction obviously gets in the way of people living their lives. So that's Mm -hmm. where you can say this depression is a mental illness versus sadness is an experience that most people can, can, you know, can 
can feel or can have happen, but then they can kind of move on from it without intervention. Whereas a mental illness typically requires intervention in order to be able to function better um, in light of those symptoms. So when should someone seek help if they have depression or anxiety? How would okay. you know it was time to seek help? Um, and, and for, especially for therapy, Mm -hmm. because I, I find um, you, a lot of PCPs will um, give you, uh, give their clients, give their patients um, the psych meds. Right. And I just don't, in general, I agree with that. Yeah. PCPs aren't trained no. to handle psych. So yeah. uh, it is it's very uh it's a very specified um area of expertise. Right. So when do you can you explain to people when they should um seek that help and mm -hmm. why it's important to find someone who's trained to diagnose and treat mental illness rather than going to their PCP. Right. So, I mean, I think, you know, to, to go back to something that I said a few minutes ago is that, you know, if you're experiencing sadness or anxiety or any kind of symptom that you feel is interfering with your daily functioning, you know, you're not mm -hmm. able to life the way you want to. You're so anxious that, you know, you can't sleep or you're so anxious that you have to go over the same thing over and over again. You're ruminating. Um, that's, that's the moment when intervention is needed. You know, if it's something that you can, you know, you can feel anxious for a little while and then you can shake it off or you can feel sad for a period of time. And then you feel like you can kind of just, you know, put those thoughts and those feelings in their proper place and move on, then it's probably not something you need to seek therapy about. But if it's something that's impacting the way that you want to and do live your life, that would be a sign that you would need, um, you know, to seek, seek help by talking to a therapist or a psychiatrist. Um, as far as finding someone who, you know, who has that level of expertise, I agree with you in that, you know, PCPs usually do not have the level of training around psychiatric medication to, um, <clears throat> um, to be administering and writing scripts for people on a, on a long-term basis. Sometimes there are PCPs who know a little bit about it and they may, based on their interviews with their clients, say, you know, you're really anxious or you're really depressed. Um, I'm going to write you this script. But the responsible thing for them to do is to say, but you need to seek, you know, a prescriber, a licensed prescriber. I'm going to give you this script right now because I think, you know, you're in distress, but I'm not going to continue to write this script for you for six months. You need to see a psychiatrist or you need to see a psychiatric MP. Um, you should also be talking to a therapist, you know, so some of the dangers um, are that sometimes people think I just need to be on meds. Sometimes mm -hmm. people think I just need to be in therapy. And what we know from the literature is that the two usually work together <laughs> better than one or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, so if you're not sure um, what type of, 
you know, clinician you need to work with, you can like, once again, contact your insurance company or contact somebody who you know has that expertise, ask them, and hopefully they'll point you in the right direction. Obviously, you always want to be working with someone who's licensed um, or who is working under the supervision of someone who's licensed because you'll know Mm -hmm. that person has passed a test or, you know, has been mentored by a professional with more expertise in that field at some point. And so you know that the the quality of the treatment that you should be receiving from them um, should be of a higher caliber. So can you take us through a typical intake session, you know, um, or a regular session with a therapist? Um, What what takes place usually? So I think it depends on where you're going for your treatment. Mm-hmm. When I've worked in mental health clinics, every mental health clinic that I've ever worked in and every mental health program that I've ever worked in, even if it wasn't a clinic, has like a huge set of documents <laughs> with the, a huge set of yeah. questions, <laughs> forms that you have to sign, um, you know, and sometimes those intakes are done in one session. Sometimes they're done over a period of a couple of sessions. You know, every program is different. Um, and it's really the, the questions that they're asking you are designed to get a comprehensive kind of overview of not only what is happening with the client right now, but kind of their previous experiences with any treatment, their upbringing, um, they want to know a lot about you. And, um, you know, I understand why why programs do that, especially programs that are under the auspices of certain like organization, um, certain uh, bodies like OMH or, you know, um, um, the, 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 the Department of Health. They have to make sure that the assessments mm-hmm. that, they're, that they're doing with clients are comprehensive and that they're giving accurate diagnoses and things like that. Um, what I find when you're working when I, as a private practitioner is that when people are reaching out to a private practitioner, they don't want to talk for four sessions about, you know, when they grew when they were growing up 20 years ago, they want, mm-hmm. they're, they're coming to you with a very specific pro- problem or concern. Mm-hmm. They want to begin talking about that right away. Does that mean though, if you're a private practitioner that you don't ask questions or you don't get to know clients? No, it just means that you're not going to sit there with, you know, a piece of paper and check off the questions as you're meeting with the client over, you know, a couple of weeks, you're trying to learn a little bit more about them. So um, intakes, official intakes tend to be lengthier and tend to have very specific questions that they're going to ask. Most initial sessions with private practitioners are more focused on what we like to call the presenting problem or the thing that the person, you know, um, had in mind when they reached out or thought therapy or someone told them to go. Um, And um, a first session for me looks more like just a conversation with that person or that potential client about like, you know, what's going on with them. Um, A regular therapy session for me with a client could look many, many ways. You know, it could be a conversation where we're laughing. You know, I use a lot of humor. Um, I think my clients think that I'm funny and I, you know, I sometimes tell jokes, not jokes, but I mean, you know, we have things that we laugh about in, in session. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes those, the sessions are a little bit more serious and it's like, we're creating a plan, like maybe a crisis intervention plan, um, you know, or we're creating, um, 
um, a list of points that a client wants to make sure that they mention and having a very important conversation with someone in their mm -hmm. personal life or in their workspace. So, you know, the sessions can look differently depending on what the needs of the client are um, and, you know, what they're looking to work on in that particular day. There are times when I, when I let the client direct the sessions. There are other times when I feel like I have to make a point, you know, mm -hmm. that I something that's very important to share and then I may be a little bit more directive um, or I may do a, a little bit more talking in those sessions with the client. Oh, okay. Um, so can you explain neuroplasticity and um, how the brain can change through the use of words and new thought processes? Yeah. So, I mean, neuroplasticity is basically the brain's ability to um, kind of create new connections or to kind of re rewire itself. Um, and so in essence, you know, when, when we're talking about neuroplasticity, what as therapists, you know, as talk therapists, what we are talking about is um, cr creating new patterns of thought or mm -hmm. new of behavior that the client will put into practice on a regular basis. And that repetitive kind of um, reliance on thinking a new type of thought or doing a specific type of exercise, whether it's like meditation or whether it's mindfulness, has actually, um, those, th those processes have actually been found to create new pathways in the brain. So mm -hmm. if I'm a person who tends to feel guilty and feel ashamed of myself quite often. But then I start working with the therapist and the therapist presents me with other ways that I can view um, myself or other ways that I can evaluate myself. You know, the therapist might actually have you work on, um, might have me work on affirmations. So when I feel shame or when I feel guilt, they might actually have me say, you know, I don't have anything to be ashamed of, or, you know, I'm a good person who, makes mistakes, but is worthy. And, you know, whatever the language is, you know, it, the, the particular language is not always important, but the fact that you're thinking a new thought and you're assigning language to that process, if you do it enough, often enough, it actually creates new connections. So the, over time, your, your brain begins to not associate thoughts with yourself so much with guilt or with shame, but with the good things that we've identified in, in therapy. Um, and, that, and I mean, that's like healing. The brain is healing itself through therapy. Um, it's very powerful. <coughs> Excuse me. Um. So how can talk therapy help reduce feelings and symptoms of anxiety and depression without the use of medications? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, <clears throat> oftentimes in general, people, when they feel anxious or they feel sad or they feel shame or they feel guilt, they may not want to talk about those things. Mm -hmm. so one of the one of the most basic ways that therapy can help with those things is by giving you a space to talk about them, um, but in a safe way, right? Because you know, let's say someone is feeling suicidal, um, mm -hmm. most people talk about their suicidality or their suicidal ideation because um, they're afraid of being judged or they're afraid that they will make those people with whom they're sharing those thoughts and feelings um, concerned or worried. So they just keep it in. Um, but if you go to mm -hmm. a therapist 
and you're talking about those things and the therapist actually, one doesn't judge you. One doesn't say that, you know, um, experiencing suicidality means you're selfish or means that you're weak. Um, and then two says, uh, I mean, and sorry, three says, I'm going to help you try to work on a way to manage these thoughts and feelings. Um, oh. You know, that's taking a big, a big weight off of somebody's shoulder who's been carrying all of that around on their own. Um, uh-huh. so, you know, just opening up communication is something that's really good. Um, I think one of the things that is common when people are so anxious or so depressed that they're consumed by those type of thoughts is that they, they, they get to the place where all outside or alternative types of thoughts um, just don't occur to them. Like they're so stuck in this kind of repetitive and consistent yeah. way of thinking negatively that they can't entertain other thoughts um, or they can't come up with them on their own. So what therapy does is kind of brings in another person who might say, oh, but, you know, this is what you're thinking. Um, is there another way that we can look at that, you know, or is yeah. there a possibility? that the way that, you know, you're interpreting it um, may not be um, what's going on here, you know? So therapy provides alternative perspective that is so hard for people to kind of come up with on their own. Um, you know, and I mean, not everybody needs medication, right? What, what mm-hmm. The research shows that for people who are truly in distress and their level of functioning is quite compromised um, because of a mental illness, that usually medication and therapy work best together. Um, but some people just need a space to bounce ideas off of, you know, or some, mm-hmm. some people just like need to be able to ask somebody, you know, this is what I'm thinking. Does this make me sound crazy? Like not everything requires medication. Um, yeah. You know, so, um, you know, but the job of a competent therapist is mm-hmm. to help the client kind of figure that out, you know, and sometimes as a therapist, I will say to a client, you know, I want you to talk to a prescriber. I don't know if you need medication, but I want you to just talk to a prescriber and then see what they say, you know, um, mm-hmm. so it's not always that you need a script, Um but, you know, it's good to have someone competent who will share with you when they think that you may need one and who mm-hmm. also very specific tools and coping mechanisms that you can combat the depression, the anxiety or the phobia or, or the PTSD, whatever it is. You know, their job is to provide you with tools. So last month was Men's Mental Health Month. And statistics have shown that African-American males in particular have had a spike in suicide rates. And the rate has actually doubled within the past year of the pandemic. Right. Um, What factors do you think have contributed to this spike and increase in suicide rates, particularly among African-American men in America? I mean, I think the two things that I can think of right off the bat are um, COVID, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. the pandemic and um, the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter um, movement, um, you know, that have kind of risen to, uh, you know, national recognition and or actually worldwide recognition and the um, acknowledgement that racism is really a problem here 
in the United States, all over the world, but particularly for the United States, um, we have this real like moment about the acknowledgement of racism and how damaging it is. Um, I think that the pandemic, you know, we know that it was um, very hard on black people. It was very hard on people of color, but it was, you know, particularly hard on black people. Um, in terms of joblessness, in terms of loss of income, in terms of, you know, because of loss of, of jobs and income, loss of health insurance, loss of housing. Um, you know, we know that food insecurity was something that, um, you know, millions more people than, than on average, you know, than, than normal were um, not having access to food. And, um, you know, and it was something that affected the black community you know, to a greater extent than any other community. So of course, you know, if you have COVID and it's impacting black people negatively, of course, you're going to see the impact on black men, right? Because we know that black men, um, you know, it's almost like they're an endangered species and that, you know, there's so much threat to their physical safety and emotional safety than when you pair that, you know, on a regular basis, right? And then when you pair that with COVID, and you pair that with so much um, disparity in terms of, you know, treatment availability and um, assistance in terms of financial assistance and things like that, it makes sense that Black men would, um, you know, th th those problems would show up much more in, in the Black male community. I think, you know, additionally, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, everything that was happening after the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, it was good in the sense that there was this acknowledgement, this first, you know, for the first time in a long time, this real acknowledgement that there are serious problems with racism in this country. But I think that um, while a lot of good work was done as a result of that, um, the deaths and the matter, uh, the manner in which black men died at the hands of police and died at the hands of racists. Um, it was like shoved in our face over and over and over again. So once, you know, people became aware of George Floyd's death and then they became aware of Breonna Taylor's death, it seemed like every other week we were seeing something on the news about a black man being shot. You know, a black man being killed on camera and uh -huh. still, you know, charges not being filed or still convictions, you know, not being handed down in large part, um, you know, and, and since black men are killed more often by the police and are killed more often in racist incidents, you know, um, imagine being a black man, seeing this on TV all the time. And on the one hand, seeing people try to fight for justice, but on the other hand, seeing blatant instances of racism play out on video and still nothing is done. That's enough to make, that's enough to make you want to like, you know, like Mar Marvin Gaye said, that's enough to make you want to holler. So of course that sadness and that trauma, you know, it's traumatic to look at the news and see s someone shot, you know, I, last week they had the Ahmaud Arbery, you know, the, the, um, the trial oh, wow. for the people who killed Ahmaud Arbery. And I hadn't seen those videos in so long. And then when they were showing them, you know, because of, the, the deliberations, I was like, oh, no, no, I can't, you know, I had made a very serious effort to not watch that kind of stuff on TV and it, it had kind of died down, but then you were being bombarded with those images again with the trial. Um, 
there's no way that anybody who is even halfway alive could see people look like them being mistreated and being, you know, abused and killed on camera and have it not affect them. Because if I were a black man and I'm seeing these things on TV, I would feel I would be afraid to be outside. I would be afraid that if I were ever wrongfully, you know, arrested or accused by the police of doing something that there might not be resource or recourse for me. I, I don't I I don't know how you can be a black person um and be halfway conscious and not be affected on some emotional and psychological level by what we see happening to people who look like us every day. My mom always says that um we are bombarded by America's fetishization of black snuff porn. That's what she calls it. Really? <laughs> like it's like it's constant and it has been this way for years. Mm -hmm. and, you know, since she was a child. And mm -hmm. she said she feels like it is a way that um America uses to keep us in our place mm -hmm. because this is what will happen to you. For sure. I mean, the, they, the trial of the officer who shot, um, I think it's Dante, right? Is his name. Um, that, mm -hmm. that just started. Right. And yeah. So of course you're seeing this discussed in the news, you know, again. And um, I guess I never feel like at some point last summer, I kind of like, just stopped listening so much or as carefully to these stories. So I knew about Dante Wright and I knew what had happened with him. I didn't, I don't think I ever knew why he was stopped in the first place. So I was listening to the news this week and it said that he was stopped because like of a broken taillight or something like that, like, or some, some, you know, some minor infraction. Um, and then I guess when they pulled him over, they said he had a warrant or something like that. But I'm like, why do you have to pull somebody over for a broken tail? Like, like it's so inconsequential, you know? And so we know that the police stopped him for something that's really not important. And we know that he was shot on camera. We know that he had like a one-year-old baby. We see all of this and we're constantly exposed to these images. And, and then we're just supposed to like move on with our day, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and if you're a young black man or a young black woman or an old black man or old black woman, what's the effect of seeing that and then having to just go out and live your daily life? You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, li I live in a pretty, you know, diverse and um, neighborhood and it's safe and everything in Brooklyn. And I remember I was pulled over by the police because I wouldn't let I didn't know they were police. They were like in an unmarked car. I wouldn't let them cut me off. So then they, you know, put the put the <laughs> the siren on and pull me over and they're like shining the flashlight in my in my car and I was petrified. And then the only reason they left me alone was because they got a call on their radio about something and they drove off. Now I'm living in a, you know, a neighborhood that's safe and it's decent and whatever and I'm afraid of being pulled over by the police. Imagine people who live, you know, in 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 you know, what's sometimes referred to as the ghetto or as areas, you know, predominantly black or, or brown areas like, 
you feel even more scared places like that, you know? Mm -hmm. We have to carry this every day. And um, a lot of the times when you're when you're in those when the, you're in those type of areas, mm-hmm. um, when a crime does happen, I'd rather deal with the crime than of the police. Course. So it's a lot of times that even crime is not reported because I'd rather take my chances with the criminal. Yeah, you don't want to invite invite the police into your into your world unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Because- know if it's going to wind up causing you know more harm than good i mean so imagine living in an area like that where you know if something was done to you depending on the severity of it you might choose to just ignore it or try to deal Mm -hmm. with it on your own because you're afraid of the of, of asking for intervention and you have to you know you're living in this area day in and day out i mean the psychological damage that that does to people on a regular basis, feeling like the police don't care or getting the police involved will, you know, will make things worse. It's traumatizing. It's traumatizing, mm-hmm. you know. And everybody expects brown people, black and brown people, to just, you know, go out and deal with that every day and be good, <laughs> you know. Yeah, don't talk about it. Yep. You know. We, we, we're watching all of this stuff unfold on TV and mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, we already know that it's traumatic. Um, and yet so many people are denying that it even exists. So mm-hmm. can you kind of, uh, please explain to people, uh, what is systemic racism? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, systemic racism is, not just racism where, you know, you may walk up to somebody and you may call them a slur or, you know, you may discriminate against somebody because of their, their rate, you know, their race. Um, Systemic racism is institutional. So it has the, it's racism that has the, has larger levels of power behind it. And it has the ability to, to affect, you know, whether people are employed, whether people eat, whether people receive quality medical care, quality um, education, whether people receive good mental health care, whether people are taken seriously when they report that they have pain at the doctor, um, you know, it, it affects people in terms of the justice system. So, you know, it, it's something that affects larger groups of people and um, in, in a, in, in, an institutional way. The basis of the racism is practiced by an institution, the medical institution, the justice, the educational um, system. And um, so institutional racism is on a large scale. Right. Um, What does the term microaggressions mean? So a microaggression is, um, you know, it can be something that's said, it can be something that's done um, that can be subtle or indirect, but that is discriminatory or is done um, as a result of someone's race. So mm-hmm. it can be something like... Um, you know, let's say you're in a, you're going to hire, you're, you're an HR person and you're going to be interviewing people for a particular job. Um, 
the job of a physician and you come out into the waiting room and you're asking for Erica Brown and there's a black woman sitting there and then there's a white woman sitting there and you as the interviewer go up and say Erica Brown to the white woman and then the black woman says no I'm Dr. Brown you know it's the it was a subtle assumption that because this woman was black she couldn't be the doctor that you would be ready to be interviewing that it had to be someone white right and not mm -hmm. only um, you know, what, what was it that she couldn't be the doctor, but it was not even acknowledging her at all. So not saying, good morning, ladies. Um, which one of you is Dr. Brown? You know, it's going totally ignoring the black woman and then going straight to the white woman and making an assumption that because of the, because of who she was racially, that she had to be the person who had the advanced degree in the medical training. So it's something where the person's not saying Oh, I'm assuming you're the doctor because you're white and I'm assuming you're not the doctor because you're black, but that's what was conveyed, right? Or that was the thought process that was behind the action. So um, that's an example of a microaggression. Um, another example of a microaggression, something that personally has happened to me, happened to me in the past where I worked at an organization and I ran a department and um, I was talking to a couple of people who, about staff, some of my staff and and I don't know, somebody didn't come in or didn't call in or something like that. Someone didn't follow protocol um, in another department. And we were talking about that. And I just said something like, you know, um, you know, if that was one of my staff members who had done that, you know, I would have, you know, taken disciplinary action. And a white woman who was in this conversation with us that she said, um, no, no, you know, of course you would have said something about it because you're mean. Right. But. And I said to her, would you have said that if I were white? Because all I said was that as a supervisor and as a director of this department, if I had a staff member not show up or not follow protocol about calling out sick or letting me know that they weren't going to be in, that I would take disciplinary action against them. Is that being, is that me being mean? And if, if a white person had said that, a white woman had said that, would you have, would you have accused her of being mean? Or is it because I'm a black woman, you assume that I'm, I'm mean and I have an attitude and that's why I would be going, you know, against these staff members. So it's like, it's little things like that, um, that are really based, you know, assumptions are based on assumptions or based on ideas that mm -hmm. are born out of people's racial identity. Yeah, I, I, I worked in a um, facility where the... I was the only black person in the whole complex. And all of a sudden, every time I walk in the room, everybody went, hey, girlfriend, what up, girl? Like, Number one, I don't even talk like that. What is wrong with you people? Right. <laughs> the assumption that that's how you mm -hmm. speak black, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sassy. And, uh, yeah, the, the sassy black woman, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. or the or the assumption that you're you're more comfortable speaking that way, right? Mm -hmm. You know that that that's how they have to get in with you by calling you girl and you know being your being you know being a homegirl with you as opposed to being a professional and just saying hi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. sometimes microaggressions can be the extras that are added. The extras, that's what that's what it could be too. 
It could be extras, yeah. It could be, um, you know, attributing things or adding things onto people's character or, you know, adding reasons or attributing, um, um, you know, um, reasons that people do something because- Angry of- black woman, angry black man. Right. Right. Sassy black, sassy black friend. Right. <laughs> or sexy, sexy black, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. It's, you know, it's assigning people um, stereotypical roles or stereotypical behaviors when they haven't demonstrated that, 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 you know, that that's where they're coming from simply because they're a member of a, a particular racial group. Yeah, Hollywood does it all the time. There's all, you can have a complete white cast and then there's always one sassy black friend or um the the save the black savior of the movie who all of a sudden saves everybody in the whole film right as if that actually exists yeah (laughs) yeah so i mean microaggressions are like slights that people Mm -hmm. you know um, and sometimes they're intentional and sometimes they're not, but, but they're based in r- racist ideals and, um, you know, values. So we talked about the, um, the constant showing of black death mm-hmm. and, in thinking about that, can you explain, um, race-based trauma? Yeah, so race-based trauma is um, trauma that we um, that you know people experience as a result of their 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 race, as opposed to um, you know because they're a woman or because they're a man or because they're a doctor mm-hmm. or because they're a lawyer, um, and it's very specific, and um, it's something that cannot be experienced by someone who is not a part of that racial group. So um, it's unique and it's inherent and it's a shared trauma that's experienced by members of a particular group. So an example of race-based trauma is, you know, the the sense of traumatization that Black people carry around with them all the time because they're frequently bombarded with images of people who look like them being shot, being killed um, on camera or... Um, you know, or the trauma that Black people carry around and internalize because when, um, you know, there is a death uh, by someone who looks like them at the hands of the police, the idea that nothing's going to happen to those police officers, they may not even go to trial, or if they do go to trial, we know that they're going to get off because we know that you know, the system doesn't work for us. That expectation that life isn't going to work for for us in the way that it would work for our non-Black counterparts um, and that sense of disappointment, um, that is an example of race-based trauma that is, you know, that is specific to us. Um, So just um, in general... Mm-hmm. Um, how have these terms played out for you in your profession or just your personal life? Well, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, I believe that there is such a thing as race-based trauma. There are certain people who work in the mental health field that don't, mm-hmm. you know, that think it's it's not a thing. 
Um, and, um, you know, it's some like racism and discrimination has always been a topic that is very important to me. And it's something that's always been very distressing. And I think um, the fact that I have space in my career to acknowledge for people that this trauma that they're experiencing, one is real, and then provide the space for them to talk about those things and to, you know, get some of that out, you know, out of their body and mm-hmm. out of their mind into the outside world. Um, you know, I, I, I'm honored that I can do that because I think that there's so many clinicians who do not provide that type of space for people. And there's so many people who feel that trauma and feel that race-based sadness and stress, and then will go to a clinician who doesn't look like them or sometimes even does look like them and be told, oh, you're making that up. Oh, you're just too sensitive. Or maybe they didn't, maybe that's not why they did that. Maybe that's not why the security guard followed you, you know? Um, So there's this gaslighting, you know, that happens. It's like psychological gaslighting that happens to a lot of people, um, particularly a lot of Black people where, you know, no one is even acknowledging that what they're feeling is real. So for me to be able to say it's real, you can talk about it. And also we can try to figure out ways to combat it so that you get it out of your body so it doesn't drag you down and damage you, you know, physically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I'm I'm just so happy that I can do that because there are a lot of people who who, who need that. And they can't find the space to, to, to have, you know, they don't have that space to talk about those things. So how can we, how can we combat this on an individual micro level and as a community um, on the macro level as, mm-hmm. as people of color? Well, I mean, I think on the micro level, like I just talked about it, you know, people are in individual therapy and they're, or they're in individual conversations with their friends and their yeah. family. And there's somebody saying, like, we acknowledge this. This is real. I want to hear your thoughts and your feelings about it. The way you have been treated is wrong. You know, the pressure and the stress that you that you live with every day because of this this race based trauma is is, you know, is damaging and it's a real thing. So that's how we address it on a micro level, right? On the macro level, what we have to do is we have to encourage universities to, um, you know, train mental health clinicians and doctors and teachers about systemic racism and train them to, um, one, get familiar with the literature and what it says and that this thing is real. And then we have to encourage them to make sure that white clinicians, as well as clinicians of color, because, you know, it's possible for, it's not in my opinion, not possible for me as a Black person to be racist, but it is possible for me to embrace, um, you know, uh, ideas of racial, internalized racial oppression, and then put that on my clients, right? So what we need organizations to be doing is to be teaching about systemic racism, the effects that it has on people's psyche, the trauma that it causes. And then we need to see that curriculum be part of licensing exams. You have mm-hmm. to demonstrate that you're proficient in recognizing what race-based trauma is and treating it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, 
we have to educate people about this. It has to be part of the curriculum. It has to be part of, you know, organizations, um, bylaws. And, you know, it, it's not just about take one cultural competency class and, and then you're fine. It's about we have to be constantly challenging people who hold power because as a therapist, mm -hmm. I hold power because, you know, there are people who are going to be like, oh, she's smarter than me or she knows exactly what's going on because she's a therapist, even though that may not be true, you know, but I hold some kind of power. So I must be educated. Right. Mm -hmm. When it comes to organizations that provide services to people, black and brown people, we need to make sure that you know, these programs are not being inherently racist. We need to make sure that if there's a detection of systemic racism in these programs, you know, um, and in terms of their guidelines and in terms of the rules and regulations that it's called out and it's corrected. Mm -hmm. So policy, education, those are ways that we can affect these things on a, on a macro level. Um. So this is powerful impact. Yes. What three people provided a powerful impact in your life, professionally and personally? Um, so I talked to you guys about the therapist that was helping my family. Um, her name was Ella. Is Ella Harris. Ella Harris, LCSW, practitioner in Brooklyn. Um, she definitely had a powerful impact on me. Um, I should also say that when I decided to become a social worker, I went to her and I asked, you know, I said, I want to go to social work school. And um, she looked over my personal statement and she kind of was like, you know, this is the, these are the type of words you want to put in. This is the language you want to use. So not only like was she helpful to my family all those years ago, but then when I wanted to pursue my education, um, you know, she was helpful to me. Um, so she definitely had a powerful impact on me. That's Ella Harris, LCSW. Um, two, I would say my dad, you know, I mentioned <laughs> um, earlier that my dad is like really power to the people kind of guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, my sister and I, um, I have a sister who's two years younger than me. We were just talking the other day about how when we were younger and my father would talk to us about racism and he would talk to us about kind of like, you know, the difficulties that black people um, experienced. Um, when we were younger, we thought that he was kind of like exaggerating, you know, or when he would say things about racism or he would say things about how white people often show up in this world. Um, we'd be like, oh, not everybody's like that. Oh, don't say that. And then the older we became, you know, and the more experiences we started to have for ourselves, we realized that a lot of the things that he um you know, used to tell us when we were growing up were true and that he had some very um, important points to make. Um, and I think that were it not, if I didn't grow up in the house that I grew up in, I don't know, I can't say that I wouldn't have become a mental health, you know, somebody in mental health, but I definitely don't think that my eye would be um, focused on like the social justice aspects of it. And I mm. also think I've always been really vocal about racism and um, that's because of my dad. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm grateful for those experiences. Um, who else? I would say um, my sister probably. Uh, actually, you know what? I want to say my daughter. Let me say my uh -huh. daughter. 
<laughs> I have a five-year-old daughter, so she's only been around for five years. I'm 44. Obviously, I've lived a lot more years without knowing her than I have knowing her. Um, one thing I will say about her is that she's a mirror to me. You know, like she shows me the good, the bad, and the ugly, and she loves me anyway. You know, and I think that that's like a powerful message um, that parents can learn from their children. Is that my daughter knows like all my faults. She's happy to point them out. <laughs> she, she knows all the times she knows all the times I messed up. You know, she's happy to point that out. But she loves me in spite of that. She loves me exactly because of how I show up in the world. Right. And our jobs as therapists is to say to people like, you know, it's not all roses and flowers. There are aspects of your personality or the way that you show up in the world that can be problematic. But you are uniquely you and you're still inherently good and you're still inherently a blessing to this world. And that's what my daughter has shown me. So. Daughters are very good at um, showing you. Yes, who you are, right? Yeah, especially I know mine often often tells me um, you do realize that you can't always be right, that you are um, human. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's humbling for me with my daughter is that, you know, my best friend who's her godmother, she's like, she's just like you. And I'm like, no, she's not. She's frustrating. She's like, she's a mini you. <laughs> so, yeah. Ditto. She's a, she's a mini me. A mini me. Yep. Which I don't know if that's all good right now. <laughs> Sometimes I just like, shut up. Right. <laughs> I don't need me right now. Right. Right. Ma'am. I need you to be somebody else. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, So, when all is said and done, mm-hmm. um, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, I think I want my legacy to be that I was um, a therapist that let people know that they're whole already. You know, I think like mm-hmm. people therapy, you know, there's something wrong with me, you know, and one of the things that I say a lot to my clients is there's nothing wrong with you, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, there may be things you want to do differently, or there may be other ways that you want to approach life, but there's nothing wrong with you. You're not damaged, you know, you're not broken, you are whole, and there are parts of you, you know, that are hold that you maybe have a harder time seeing, my job is to help you see that. So um, I would hope that when people think about me, you know, people who have worked with me, that they'll be like, oh, that was that was a therapist who treated me, treated me with decency, who didn't judge me, and who really like showed me an accurate picture of who I was. And so she didn't try to fix me. Mm-hmm. She wanted me to be more of who I really am. I just want to thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is uh, 
something that I think our community really needs. Um, and we really need to focus on mental health because we have so much trauma that we're packing around every day yeah. and it is affecting us. And you see the effect and we're so used to not dealing and just, you know, we have to march forward yep. that we are silently suffering when we don't have to. Yeah. And Absolutely. you're so important. And I really appreciate you coming on here and spreading your knowledge because these interviews aren't easy. You know, it's <laughs> a long time to sit and talk to somebody, but yeah. I really appreciate you taking your time and explaining it in layman's terms for people to really understand the importance of mental health. Um, oh, thank you. I'm, yeah. Sorry. Is there anyone you'd like to give a shout out to or anything you're currently working on that you'd like to um, talk about? Yeah. So um, I think I mentioned at the beginning that I regularly run um, support groups for women who are suffering from infertility and pregnancy loss. And mm -hmm. so... I, um, in the past, I've done that on a, on a more ongoing basis, but I've decided to make them um, kind of shorter periods of time. So in January, mm -hmm. I'm launching um, another iteration. <laughs> That's them. Another iteration of that. <laughs> um, sorry. I'm also going to be putting together a group for couples who are suffering mm -hmm. from fertility. Um, and I have a lot of professional development work that I'm looking to. So I'm looking con to connect with organizations um, who want me to come in. <laughs> um, so cute. I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. You're fine. <laughs> so You're yeah. Fine. Okay. So I'm looking we love at the puppies. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Come baby. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to grow my groups and um, work with some organizations around some of the topics that um, are really important to me, racism um, in the workplace and uh, microaggressions and things like that. So what are your contacts in the way people can get in touch with you? Um, and when we're going to put them in the description. So if anybody wants to speak with her, all of her information will be in the description. But if you can give them, give them your information and where to find you at. Sure. So um, my email is Ayana Ali LCSW at gmail.com. So that's A Y A N A A L I L is in Larry. I is in igloo. Um, I'm sorry, L is in Larry, C is in Cat, S is in Sam, W is in Walter, Ayana Ali, LCSW at gmail, um, dot com. My website is www.ayanaalielcsw.org, O-R-G. Um, you can find me on Psychology Today. You can find me on a website called helloalma.com. And um, you can find me on Instagram at 
Ayana Ali LCSW. So um, you can also probably just type my name in, Ayana Ali LCSW, into Google, and it'll take you to one of my pages. So <laughs> it's been spectacular having you here. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, this is this is kind of a personal baby for me, uh, mental health. And yeah. I think it's important. And I think that we have suffered in silence for so long. And it's time to step out and really deal with the trauma and really understand so that we can step out into the world full, fully adjusted and ready to kick its butt. I agree. I agree. Thank you so much for having me today. It's been so nice talking to you. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Powerful Impact. Again, I'm SP. We got the man behind the blue wall up there now. (laughs) (laughs) And we ask you to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on social media. Tonight, you kind of saw the beginning stages of us as a community healing ourselves. I want to thank Ayana Ali. This has been a pleasure. I so appreciate you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Good night, guys. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night. Go out there and make a powerful impact in your community, everyone. Bye. Toast and chairs abundant, my dear beloved, truly love us. Take in the view and just admire the beauty of us. Rich in pigment, in spirit and accomplishments. Not the monoliths anonymous with impoverishment, imprisonment and pain we're presented as. Lift black leather clad fists and everlasting praise for the courageous liberators, demonstrators, educators, innovative creatives, the nurturers, entrepreneurs, and organizers who remind us to keep our heads pointed skyward. Survivors who can testify that the sentiment of never forget has never been lent to our genocides in this nation. Under greed, the visible, hypocritical, conditional creeds and principles, peer pressured patriotism, pledges of. Allegiance.